0: So I hope you're all doing well. Um, I've been sharing that the big annual pastors conference, Calvary Global Network uh, was last week. So if you don't know, um, our church is affiliated with the Calvary Chapel movement of churches. Um, it's a Christian church, non-denominational, um, uh, kind of pioneered in the, in the 60s. And um, I personally hadn't been connecting At these meetings as as much for various reasons. One of the big reasons, this isn't going to go on the internet, um, is that when the founder passed away, there was a big rift. And that's not abnormal, by the way, if you study movements of any kind, right? Even in business, you have some, you know, Steve Jobs or whoever it is. But in in church movements, when a founding figure passes, there's almost always sort of a, a fight over who will be the true heir, who, who has the real vision and all that. So that kind of stuff was going on, and I'm just like, I don't do drama, at least not on purpose, you know what I mean? Like, so I kind of let that kind of happen and see whatever, but then over the years, I just really you know, have been encouraged just to reconnect with my roots, reconnect with uh, friends, colleagues, other pastors, and, and also even though there's things you know, in the family of God, and in the church that I don't like. Um, and I wish we could do better, um, but it's still our family. It's our family tree, right? So we have this big spiritual family tree, and the Bible records our spiritual genealogy. And to be honest, there's some people in there, you're like, yeah, that's our guy, that's our girl. And others are like, I'm not related to him. You know what I mean? Like they're just doing stuff, and you're like, oh my gosh. Uh, but that, that is kind of what it is, and I think you know, there, there's, a, there's a beauty to family, but it's also messy. Right. I took a phone call from a lady yesterday. She called in after our radio show and she shared that she's, you know, one of seven children. And just growing up, how uh, her best friend came from a, a, a household with one child. She was an only child. And, and she was saying she, she realized how different it was. She went over to her friend's house where there was one kid and everything's like calm and clean and nice and everything, you know, and all, all the attention and money goes here. But then the family of seven is just a big, Mess and she was like, Gosh, I wish my life was more like that. I get more attention and all this. But she said later in life, You know, I realize that there's a beauty to the chaos, there, there's a beauty to the mess. That sure, having a, a big old family of seven people is hard in some ways, but it, as, as life goes on, what's more beautiful than that? It's more beautiful than your family, and I think the same is true of our spiritual family. So I got to be there. Last week, I got to see friends and colleagues in ministry. hadn't really seen in years, and, and it's just amazing to see what happens. It's, a, it's amazing to see um, some people, the reversal uh, of the course of their life. Some people, things were going really well. That's the last I heard. It was just perfect success, success, success. It was just never-ending trip on up and then I see them now, and, and it's just been one series of disaster after another. There were other people that were on the verge of quitting the ministry. They're like, I've made a mistake. I shouldn't have done this. It's the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. No joke. They're saying that about being uh, in pastoral ministry, and I see them now. and They're like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't quit, and, and this and that and the other, and then there's people where they're just, you know, it's the slow and steady life. It hasn't been horrible, hasn't been great, and they're and they're just kind of being faithful and going through it. And it just reminded me of, of the beauty of spiritual family. And it and that's part of my vision for the church is that it be a multi-generational church. That it would be a community of people that They really want to be here for the people. It's not just about, oh, how good is the music? I'll get out my scorecard. Oh, I give that a nine today. Oh, how's the preaching? Oh, how's this? How are the chairs? We all know they're not that great. And you know, just whatever else. And, And you're just kind of objectifying it and rating it. But I think it should be personal. I think the church should be personal. And that makes sense because we preach about a personal God. It's not an abstract thing or idea. He's a a person. God is personal. And so I think the church should be personal. And now on that note, all relationships are two-way streets, aren't they? All relationships are two-way streets. Now granted, there might be seasons in your life where it feels like you're doing all the driving. Have you ever been one of those seasons? You're in a relationship, two-way street. That's how these things work. I'm the only one driving. You know, you're, you're expecting to be, you know, Ubered and lifted everywhere or whatever. You don't want to get on and it's like, and it's all me. And I heard a saying years ago and they said, you know, every good relationship's 50-50. Split it right down the middle. Well, if you want to fail, <laughs> go for it. Yeah, 50-50. It's 100% and 100%. That's what a successful relationship is. And as we're going to see this morning, as it turns out, a relationship with God is similar. We've been talking in 1 Peter about what we are supposed to do. About what our responsibilities, what we are going to do. And a lot of the Bible has that, right? You do this, you do this. We know these as the rules. They're usually not people's most favorite thing about the Bible. I know growing up, that's what I didn't like about the Bible was the rules. I'm like, I don't want to keep rules. I don't like rules. Some of these seem arbitrary to me, and oh, you're just saying that, or whatever. So I I pushed away from the rules. And the only reason I came back to appreciate the rules is I broke enough of them to realize maybe God put them there because He loves me. But I didn't trust Him, so I had to break a bunch before I realized He loves me. These rules are there for my good. But what I'm really excited about this morning, and I really am, I'm so excited, Because this morning is a message of hope. And it's not a message about anything you have to do. Is that nice? Did anybody come here this morning like, oh, I need one more thing I need to do? Could you please give me just just one more? You know? It's like, because then I'll snap, you know? This morning's message is a message of hope. And it's not about anything you can do, it's about what God promises to do. And so if you would, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. To 1 Peter chapter 5 we're going to look at 2 verses 10 and 11. I also have the passage up on the screen behind me. And please follow along with me now as we read God's word together. 1 Peter 5 beginning in verse 10. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You so much that You are a God who creates. You are a God who speaks. You are a God who acts. And what causes me to marvel the most, You are a God who promises. And so this morning, as we Study your promises. As we seek to understand what you're saying, why we ought to believe it, and how it should change our lives, I just pray we would be open. Lord, if there's any of us here this morning who were here in body, but we are absent in spirit, I pray that you would refresh in and quicken us right now Not at the end, when we've missed everything you have to say, but that you would begin working right now. For those of us that might be hard hearted, our minds are open, but our hearts are not. We might be hurt, we might be angry we might be disappointed. Lord, if there's any condition of heart this morning that would prevent us from being healed and blessed, I pray that you would soften those hearts this morning. I pray for minds that might be closed off. And we're just not willing to hear things as they are. And we're pushing back constantly, even when there's no reason, just because we perceive we might lose control. I pray you would speak peace to our minds. That in you, we have a friend we can trust that is better than any brother, as the proverb says. And so I pray you'd speak to us this morning and that Jesus would be glorified and near to each one of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, so the context of 1 Peter, we've been talking about what we have to do. And make no mistake, we have responsibility. And I find that individuals can veer towards one side or the other. and. Um, This didn't used to be acknowledged quite as much, although the ancients were much wiser and smarter than we often give them credit for. Um, But modern studies in psychology have have shown differences of personality can be responsible for many things that we think about in terms of character or gifting or things of of that nature. And I've kind of noticed that this is true not only with individuals, but, but even churches. Some churches can gear more towards the Like, we need to do this. It's all about us. It's about keeping all the rules. We've got to do all this right. And if we don't do everything right all the time, it's all on us, then God's not going to bless us. And whole churches can actually kind of fit that pattern. But then you can kind of have the other side where it's not about anything. It's not about keeping any rules. Oh, rules are bad. Rule, rules are actually the worst thing in the world. They hold you back. And so salvation is just freeing yourself from every possible rule. And then, and, oh, and grace, that seems to kind of affirm that. You're saved by grace, not by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So we don't have to keep any rules at all. And I think biblically what you want to do is, is say that there's truth to both, but that neither are true without the benefit of both. That there is a two-way street because we are in a real relationship. And like any relationship, if I don't do certain things, even if I want my wife to respond a certain way, but if I don't do what I need to do, I can kick and scream she's not responding the way that I want her to, but I'm not doing my job. I'm not being responsible. So it's very important that we don't pass over Scriptures that show our responsibility, the things that are required of us. But it's so important that we point out it's not all about us. It's not not all about our work. It's not all about our effort. That God makes promises that He's going to do and that you don't do. It's His part because it's a real relationship. And so that's what we see here in 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11. And that's going to be the heart of what I'm going to speak on this morning. But I want to begin with verse 10 and work our way through because it sets up this promise by describing the God of promise. Has anyone seen the movie Tommy Boy with Chris Farley? It's kind of been a while. Hilar- hilarious movie. Um, but it, it, in the movie, Chris Farley is, is a salesman for auto parts, right? And all the competitors offer guarantees. And there's this scene where the, the, he's trying to make a sale, and the guy goes, well, do you guarantee? And he's, uh, I don't know if I should share this in church, but you know he's, he's like, we, we don't have a guarantee, but I'll, I'll skip over the... Possibly offensive line. And he gets to this part and he says, A guarantee is only as good as the guy who makes it. Everyone loves, oh, guarantee, promise. Well, a promise is only good, or a guarantee is only good as the one who made it, right? So Peter begins by describing the one who makes the promise. Can the one who guarantees, can the one who promises be trusted? And that's what we see in the opening line. It says, But may the God of all grace. God is the God of all or every. Really, it's in the singular. It's every grace. I I like that. He is the God not just of grace in general. He is the God of every grace. James 1.17 says this. Every grace. Every good gift in life, every perfect gift in life comes down from the Father above with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. Anything good that we have in our lives comes from Him, comes from God. And James says, and God doesn't change. He's not like us. He's not a finite being made up of parts. He once wasn't, now He is. He could go out of existence again because once He wasn't. That's not God. That's us. And what's amazing is, human society does not work without trust, does it? Our whole financial and economic model is built on trust. You trust that digital numbers Will be translated into real currency somehow so you can pay your bills. You trust that. You trust that cash, this piece of paper, you, you can't eat it. You can't smell, well, you shouldn't smoke it, but you know, you, you can't do these things with it, and yet you trust that you can exchange it for something else. Our whole lives are built on trusting other people, but those people change. Those people can be strong or weak. Those people can be true or liars. Those people can be here one day but gone tomorrow. And yet we trust every day in order to live our lives. So it's really strange that it's such a difficult task to trust God with our lives. The one who doesn't change, James says, The one who Peter says is the God of every grace. And in case that word grace is just kind of church jargon for you, it also means favor or kindness. Every grace, every favor, every kindness, that's God and God doesn't change. Isn't a God like that worthy of your trust? Makes all the sense in the world. If God is who Scripture says He is. A God who keeps covenant. Doesn't break covenants. He's not like us where we can break our promises. Some of us to this very day, maybe it happened many years ago, we are still carrying scars and wounds of those who have broken their promises. It could be a mother or a father broke a promise to be there could be a husband or a wife broke their promise to be there for you. could be colleagues. You had a shared vision and said, oh yeah, we're going this way. And then one day they go, no, I'm going to steal your money. I'm going to embezzle from you. I'm going to break your heart. We've all had broken promises of some kind somewhere. And we're hurt to this day and we're shaped by that. But if we're Humble enough to admit it. Have you not broken any promises in your life? I know I have. And it wasn't out of ill will either necessarily. I could have sincerely meant, I I want to do this. I really want to make this good. But perhaps life was such that I was unable, I did not have the power to fulfill my promise. What Scripture tells us is that not only is God willing He is able he is willing and he is able and every grace comes from him but oftentimes we are looking to others to give us the grace only God can give one of the speakers at the conference last week was my brother I have one brother it's my brother Tim pastor in London he was in LA now he's in London And he was teaching on the book of Esther, chapter 1. And he gave this great definition of idolatry. Idolatry is a very, very important concept in the Bible, both in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, and the New Testament. You kind of want to know what that is. Because just because we don't make idols in the way that the ancients did doesn't mean we don't have them. Famous Jewish philosopher Martin Buber once said, idols are idols, whether mental or metal." Whatever you put in place of God, whoever you look to, whatever you look to, for what only God can give you is idolatry. That's the heart of it. And I think part of the problem is we're looking, we we know we need grace, We we know we need promises made to us, but we're looking in the wrong place. And if we're smart enough, and perhaps lucky enough, we'll look in places that pan out more often than not. Right? The law of averages. We're big into statistics in our world. Well, you know, there's a 97% chance you won't die. Okay, that's pretty good, but 3% is pretty scary, right? I I want no percent chance that that I'm gonna die. But we, we do everything by statistics but who's to say when that 3% will happen to the person who experiences the 3% you think they care about the stupid statistic right it doesn't ma- that doesn't actually that's some way of like generally planning that doesn't actually help me personally necessarily god is not a god of statistics it's not uh yeah God kind of works out sometimes and other times not so much. Uh, should I really trust Him with my life? Should I really be obedient? Should I really expect Him to do what he says? He's, uh, uh. That's not who God is. And the biggest obstacle to seeing who God is is learning to transfer our expectation of every promise, of every hope, and all the grace we need from other people and other things and putting it on God. That is what Peter says to do. He is the God of every grace. And so you can trust that He is willing and able to keep His promises. Peter then says, who called us, to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. If you ever find yourself in the middle of your journey, right? did you ever feel like you embarked on something that was significant? Did you ever feel that way? Uh, Maybe it's when you got into a relationship with somebody, right? I mean, most people I know in the modern world, this wasn't always true. Still isn't true in certain parts of the world, but typically in our culture, when we get married, you didn't do it because you had to. It wasn't arranged by somebody else and the system is such that you can't say no unless you want to be unemployed <laughs> or something like that. Typically we do it because we want to. We want to. Even if it, you know, everyone else hates, hates the person you're marrying, whatever, it's like we're going to do it anyway. Because the story is about us. We embarked on a journey, but then maybe that journey veered right. Maybe that journey veered left. Maybe you started a career, you started a business, you're like, oh, I can make a difference. Oh, I can, this is amazing, like it, it uses my gifts, I have that inner drive to create and do that which I am uniquely fitted in this world to do, oh, that, that's exciting just right there. Oh wow! And then I, I can make a profit, and then with a profit, I, I could do this. And you know, oh, oh, yeah! That, that's another driver. Oh, and then I could actually add this to the world and benefit the. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. But it goes sideways. It goes to the left. Have you ever been in that place? I know I have. I'm like, and it's almost like frustrating when you have that clear sense of call in the beginning, like you were so sure you were meant to do it. It wasn't like you flipped a coin and were indifferent and didn't work out. You probably wouldn't care that much, right? Probably not as much. But when you were sure, like, man, I, I could have sworn, looking back, I could have sworn I was meant to do that. If you ever get to that place, what Peter says you should do is you should look back, but not to the beginning of that idea, your business. Not to the beginning of your, your relationship with that man or that woman. Not to that time when you decided to major in that and not in this. Peter says, look to the time when God called you from darkness to light. Remember that time when you were a sinner and you knew you were a sinner and you knew you were lost and you knew there was no way on God's green earth you were going to believe in Jesus unless He made you. Unless He brought you to the end of yourself. Where all your resources were exhausted. Go back to that moment. And remember that the One who began is faithful to complete that which he has started. For me, my moment uh, is distinct. I know this isn't the case for everyone. I want to recognize whatever you want to call it—conversion moments, new birth, regeneration, what, whatever it is. Different and different traditions. For some people, it's just very gradual. They they can't pinpoint like a moment. You know, it's like, oh well, I always kind of believe, but but you know, you know, there was definitely bumps in the road, and I had to learn. For me, it was, it was a very clear, definable moment. I was on the floor of an apartment in Azusa, California. I was lost. I was in the darkness. There was no light. People and places I never thought I would be around. I was surrounded by. I could have lost my life could have lost my friends, could have lost everything. My personality, my sense of humor, my wit, things I learned to use to get where I wanted to go were gone. I had nothing left. And that is the moment when I heard the call of God on my life. And my response to God wasn't, well... (laughs) I got a little laundry list of, you know, if you want to be in a relationship with me, you know, you you got to do this and you got to do that, you know. When I was on that floor in that apartment, I told the Lord, if you will take my miserable, wretched life and make it yours, I will follow you till I die. And someone will have to pry my cold, dead fingers off of you because I am not letting go. And I believe regardless of the difference of the circumstance, and it can differ significantly, and I'm, I want to acknowledge and affirm that, but that level of conviction in the heart, I actually want to say should be a common experience. And I say that not on my experience, but on the stories of Scripture. Scripture. Read through the Gospels. Read through Matthew. Read through Mark. Read through Luke. Read through John. You'll see the stories of people who pressed through crowds, grabbed hold of Jesus, and wouldn't let go. Stories of people, Jesus being surrounded in houses, and literally people tear roofs open. I mean, imagine like the owner of the home. Are you serious? This is a new home and it's over a year. My warranty's gone. These friends tear open a roof and lower their sick friend down. Over and over and over you see people that refuse to let go until God blesses them. And that's not a new story in the New Testament, is it? One recalls the story of Jacob before he's encountering his his great fear. A fear that's been nagging him ever since he left home. i got to face the music. i got to face what I've done. My past is catching up to me. And what's that going to mean? He doesn't know. Is it going to go this way? Is it going to go that way? I don't know. And then we're told the angel of the Lord appears to Jacob. And he wrestles with him. It says he wrestles all night long. And his very words are, I will not let go until you bless me. And I think that is the level of conviction in our calling that we need to have. That we were truly called by God, not just to go do something, because then your identity is in your function, and what happens when you no longer function? Then you say, I'm a nobody. This happens to many, many people. When they get injured, time goes on you get older and you simply can't do what you once did and you didn't realize until you couldn't do it anymore your identity and your worth was completely tied up with what you do so your calling can't be rooted in what you do it can't be rooted in another person and I realize that's hard to say and almost impossible to do until you lose somebody as, as hard as you try to keep a distinction between God and others, it's very hard until someone dies. When my mom lost my dad in 2003, that was one of the things that I saw happen is in addition to grief, and you love somebody all that, but there was a real loss of identity. Who am I? She, I don't think she knew how much her sense of self was in my dad. Now some of that it is. It's inevitable. We're finite changing beings. If we're changing with somebody else, which is not a bad thing per se, but if we aren't also covenanted, rooted in a relationship with the unchangeable God, then when we lose a job, when we lose the ability to function, when we lose a relationship, we haven't just lost those things. We've lost ourselves. So it has to be calling in belonging to Jesus. That we belong to Him. That's who we are. My sense of who I am is not in what I do. It's not in what other people do or in how I relate to them or them to me, but in the unchangeable, all-gracious, covenanting, promise-keeping God. That, my friends, is a solid identity. One that cannot be taken from me. And though the early Christian church in the first few centuries experienced horrendous suffering, one apostle out of twelve lived to old age. One. The rest were murdered. We call them martyr because we believe they did not die for nothing but bore witness that Jesus was the Messiah. But they all buried their testimony in their own blood. The one that survived to old age didn't survive because for a lack of trying to kill him. He was tortured. He was exiled. That would be John. But as Tertullian once said, the blood of the martyrs was the seeds of the church those that came to kill the church actually caused it to spread. Why? It seems counterintuitive, right? If you're getting killed or people dying for something you don't truly believe in, you are going to stay as far away from that as you can. I'm not dying for nothing. I'm not dying for something I don't believe in. I'm not even dying for something I'm like, eh, it's alright. That's cool, but eh, not, not, I don't fully believe it. People saw that level of conviction And that when everything was taken from them, their homes, their families, and eventually their own lives, and they refused to give up Jesus. They said, no. We believe that he died and rose again. And we're not just saying that as a nice little Christian fairy tale. We're willing to seal our testimony in our blood. How do you know you really believe Jesus rose from the dead? It isn't just because you say it. It's because you're willing to lose your life. Do you really believe Jesus is going to raise me up? Well, they sure did, didn't they? They believed it. That's why they were willing to die. Their identities were not bound up in things anyone can take. That's why they didn't recant. They were bound up in the One who can never be taken from us. And so Peter says, if you ever, ever, ever find yourself lost in your journey, you're in the woods, it's dark, the path is is gone, You don't know where you came from. You don't know where you're going. Remember who called you. And he says, He's called us forward to His eternal glory. So those that believe in Jesus not only know where they come from in a way that gives them courage and conviction, but they know where they're going. They know what the end of the story is. You want to know how this turns out? Even though I don't know what maybe the next day is, but really, you want to know how it turns out? To his eternal glory that we are called to share. That's incredible. God sharing his eternal glory with those who are in his son, Jesus. And that is of infinite worth, infinite value, never ending. That is your destiny. And if that sounds like too good to be true, because you say to yourself, well, I'm not worthy of that. I'm not worthy of that. The Bible says that's true. You're not worthy to share in God's glory. But Jesus is. And by faith in Him and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are united in covenantal union with Christ, and with the Father, and with the Spirit. And we share that same eternal destiny. The answer that Peter gives is we are qualified for eternal glory through the blood of our Savior Jesus. And notice what he says next. But after... The word but's not there. I'll I'll insert it. But after... You have suffered a while. Notice what he says about our present suffering. It is only for a while. Uh, Another way of translating the same word is little. No one feels like it's just a while or a little when you're in it, right? It doesn't feel that way. Peter has a unique perspective. When someone's suffering greatly, no one ever says, oh, this is just going to rip my heart out of my chest for a while. For a while. For a while. No one says, oh, this horrible betrayal by someone I gave everything to is only going to hurt a little. You don't talk like that, right? He's not minimizing what we're going through. It could feel that way, right? And I know that frustrates us probably when you have a very, something hurts you a lot, you share it with someone, you're like, eh, it's not a big deal. You know, and you're like, you don't understand. You don't know. But that's not what Peter is doing. What he's doing is putting it in perspective. That whatever we're going through right now, one of the felt experiences, this is not truth in the absolute sense but it's personal truth right the truth is that your felt experience in the moment is that it's forever one of the things you'll see in in the psalms the psalmists will speak with great hyperbole I'm drowning in my tears really what are you in a container I mean how is that possible that's that's an awful lot of tears See what I'm saying? It's, it's not true that he's literally drowning in his tears. It is true that is how he feels. I feel like I'm drowning in my tears. I'm surrounded on all sides. Well, in some cases, the psalmists actually were. But have you ever felt like I'm surrounded by enemies on all sides? When Okay, technically you're not. But you have enemies and that's your felt experience. They're all around. No matter where I go, I can go home and I feel it. I can go to work and I feel it. I'm on the freeway and I feel it. The enemy is moving in. People that want to destroy us. You can feel that. But what Peter is doing is putting it in perspective of what he has said. Remembering that God is a God of all grace and He doesn't change. Remembering that you were called by God. You didn't call yourself. Calling comes from without. God called you. Remember, past whatever this is, that feels like everything and feels like forever. He's reminding you, no, it's not. No, it's not. And we would be wise to practice telling those words to ourselves. It's not that what I'm going through is not real. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's not that I know for sure exactly when it'll end or whatever it'll be. But it is a lie that it has the last word. That this will define me in the end. That this is what eternity is. No, it is not. No, it is not. No, it is not. That is a lie. Because one of the things I find that can crush me and I've seen it crush others is not so much the thing itself, whatever you're going through. It's actually your beliefs about what you're going through. When you believe, okay, this person broke my heart. That hurts, and it's going to. No way around it. If you care, you're going to be hurt. But then when you also assign, therefore I'm worthless. Ever done that? I'm not of value. What I do doesn't matter to anybody. When you begin to assign certain beliefs to what you're going through, I find most of the time, that's what kills you. That's what breaks your back. That puts the final nail in the coffin. And the irony, we chose it because we believed a lie. Peter says, Whatever you're going through, it is only for a while. It is only a little. The Apostle Paul uses similar language in one of the great verses of the Bible 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Our light and momentary affliction even though the outward man is perishing the inward man is being renewed day by day there is there is an irony the body is passing as as the soul is progressing they're going different directions in life and isn't that true don't we say oh i wish i would have known back then what i know now back when i was 20 and i could You know, run the 40 yard dash in, you know, 4.7 seconds, and I could throw a ball 50 yards, 60 yards, and I could, you know, throw a fastball at 95 miles an hour or whatever, you you know, but then you were an idiot. You know what I mean? It's like you drank every beer you could find and, and you just ruined your career, and you're like, oh, if I could just, if I could have known then what I know now. Paul says, even though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And this light affliction, once again, putting it in perspective, because it doesn't feel light when you're in it. He said this light affliction, which lasts only for a moment, is working for us on our behalf. Far and exceeding eternal weight of glory. That's what God is actually doing. So that is what we are to believe about the pain that we suffer. I want to encourage any of you this morning in suffering. What do you believe about what you are suffering? I may not be able to fix what caused the suffering itself. If I could, I would. And as a general rule, I do pray that way. I pray, Lord, lift this from them. Don't, I don't want them to go through that. I don't want them to deal with that. I don't. I think they would pray the same for me. I, I don't want that. But if this is granted to them because you are working in them a far and exceeding eternal weight of glory, then Lord, give them the eyes to see it. To see that it is working for their advantage and not their disadvantage. That it is not death, but life that is being worked through it. Let them see that. What do you believe about what you are going through? Peter then goes on to the heart of this morning's message, which is a fourfold promise about what God promises us in Christ. It is not about our behavior, what we're doing. We have our part. This is what God is doing. Look with me. After you have suffered a while, He will perfect, establish, strengthen and settle you. <clears throat> I want to break each one of these down because I think they're very important. I also want to pause for a moment and just ask a very practical question. You'll see where I'm going in a second. Um, I we use the New King James Version of the Bible on Sundays. It's the version I grew up with. It's a good version. How many of you regularly on a weekly basis Use a version, maybe not primary, but you use a version other than the New King James. Raise your hand. Okay, looks like the majority of you. Um, And again, I've said this before. You can see that as good. You can see it as bad. What I think for sure we can all say, it complicates things, right? So we're sitting around in men's group, which is conversation. We have a little bit of teaching time, but it's conversation. And as we go around the room and read, Pretty much every time we do it, I notice there's five different versions, six different versions, and usually they're similar enough, you know, saying the same thing. Once in a while, you get some differences. This morning was such a case. The New King James and the King James follow the Greek manuscripts called the Textus Receptus. Now, these four promises, this, this is why this matters, are in, here's the technical, for any nerds, if any nerds, It's in the aorist optative. Now, here's what that means. It means it's a prayer or a wish. That's what the aorist optative is. It's a prayer or a wish. That's why if you have a New King James, it says, may God do this. Okay? Now, if you have an ESV, NLT, NIV, they don't have an aorist optative for for all four verbs. They have a future indicative, which is the tense of promise. I will do this perfect i will establish i will strengthen and then of course you have the majority text which the textus receptus is based on but not fully representative of and it does a little bit of both the first verb is an aristoptive it's a prayer or a wish and the next three are promises so what do i do well, I recognize that a lot of my church, as you just demonstrated, use different versions. So there's times where you're going to come across like, oh, why does it say that? Or how come it says that? And, and what do we do with it? And I think that these things can be harmonized. So on the one hand, we have, we have a, a prayer or a wish. I pray that God will do these four things for you. Now, one of the ways to take that in a way that harmonizes with promise, and this is and, I'll share the fruit of this right now with you. After wrestling with the objective text, because at the end of the day, even if I wanted to believe a promise, one of the worst things I can do is tell people God promised something He didn't promise. Even if it makes them feel good. I can't do that. I'm bound by Scripture to say what it says, even if I don't like it. So I really wrestled with it. And it was my conviction, both through objective study of the Greek, comparative study, as well as the conviction of my heart, and consensus of others that this is a promise. God is promising to do this. This is not a possibility. God might perfect you. He might. Maybe not. God might strengthen you, but He might not. God might establish you, but He might not. This is a promise. God will do these things. And I reconcile that with the prayer in this way if it's the the prayer text that you read or prefer a prayer that God will do these things is predicated on a God who can and a God who will a God who wills to do so does the character of God in scripture fit such a prayer does God love you does does he want to restore you does he want to heal you does he want to strengthen you does he want to do that yes he does Is God able to do these things? Well, if you read through the things God has done in in people's lives and who He's chosen and how He's reversed the course of their lives and made them something out of nothing over and over again, that's what He does. Wow, well then it's in His character. It's in His ability. And so there's expectation along with that prayer. And then we have reason to believe it is promised. So I see it as a prayerful promise that we can expect God to fulfill. And so I share that with you this morning. The first promise is this. He will perfect you. Now the word perfect is katartidzo. And perfect is not a good translation, I don't think. Normally when you read the word perfect, it's teleo. It's, it is finished or it is completed. When Jesus hung on the cross and said tetelestai, that's the perfect form of teleo. It is finished, okay? Or when it talks about being uh, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped and complete, that's to let O again. Typically perfect. That's not the word here. It's Tidzo. And the primary definition is to cause to be in a condition to function well, to put in order to restore. Let me give you a picture. So a better translation is repair and restore hear that for a moment. God promises to repair you. He promises to restore you. This is the same word used in Matthew four twenty-one. in a seemingly unimportant text. It's the text where the disciples are out. They're going to work. They were fishermen, so they were at work, on the job, doing their thing. They're in the shop. They're in the office, commuting to work. And the tools of their trade as fishermen were nets. And it says they were mending their nets. Same word used here about what God is going to do in us. Now, when a fisherman goes out with a net that's torn, it's ruined, can he perform his function? No. He can put a lot of effort. You can put more effort. But if you're torn, if you're in a state of disrepair, you cannot fulfill your calling. You cannot do what you were made to do. Peter says God promises to mend you, to sew you back up, so that you can once again be the fishers of men Jesus is calling you to be. The disciples mended their nets, but Jesus mended their hearts. I believe Peter suffered from a broken heart, one due to his own betrayal and his inability to keep promises. When it came down to, he loved Jesus, but when it came down to him, or Jesus, he was all about him. He abandoned him, but he wept. He knew he had betrayed a friend. He knew he betrayed Jesus, who he had come to believe was, was more than that. And at the end, after Jesus rises again from the dead, there's the scene where they're fishing once again. and Jesus makes them breakfast. And we see Jesus call to Peter, and you remember three times, Matching the three times Peter denied him, and he told him to feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. He's restoring Peter. We can restore nets ourselves. We don't need God for that. We do need God to mend our hearts. And we have a promise here in Scripture that I believe is for me, personally. When I was reading this, it wasn't just aorist optatives and future indicatives wasn't less than that but I believe God told me this that the word Mike went along with it Mike I'm going to do this in your life and in that moment I mean I, I'm, I'm aware of some things that you know hurt or whatever but a bunch of things came up really? because I had learned to just lock those away and put them over here and figure well that's, that's life right? c'est la vie that's life But I feel like God said, but I'm a God of restoration. I'm a God of repair. And if you don't let me repair you, you can't fulfill your call. That's the tragedy, too. It's not just about feeling better, although I hope we feel better. It's about fulfilling your call. There's a call on your life. How are you going to go do it when you are in a state of disrepair? Because you are God's net. You are God's instrument. We must be repaired, and there's a promise we will be. The second and third promises I put together, they're basically overlapping words. They seem to have an almost identical meaning, perhaps for emphasis. The first one is steryxiae. It's where we get the word steroid. To make hard. To make strong. To make firm. The second is Stenose, once again, to strengthen or make strong. There's two primary definitions. The first is an outer condition. It can refer to the body. You'll be strengthened, somebody who's tired, sick, right, being strong. It can be referred to social standing, economic standing. You can make strong your support systems in life. It can also mean strengthening of the inner man, of conviction and resolve. And though I think the first two are certainly within God's purview, I believe that the emphasis in the context is on that third. It's the idea that God is able, through what you're going through, not to break your resolve, though it feels like that, right? My wife and I just celebrated our 14th anniversary last week. 14 years, but six kids. So i got a lot of you beat that have doubled the number of years. Blended family to boot, so complicated in that sense. And I can tell you, there were seasons in life, particularly early on, where I did not think we were going to make it. I didn't think there was any way we could go through what we went through and make it. Then when we made it, I thought, well, there's no way you can go through that and make it. And not be bitter. <laughs> I can now tell you, not only did those things not break us, not only did they not make us bitter, they made us better. We are stronger for having gone through it. The resolve through, through the attack, through people hurting us, betraying us, kids going doing their thing, whatever. It could have split us up. But God did the opposite. He, we bind it together. When you go through hell together, it brings together a divine relationship. Something that's powerful. We hear this in, in stories of war. My grandfather was a World War II veteran. And these stories of these 18, 19-year-old kids going off to war great war millions of people definable evil even a subjective relative age even people to this day who say there really is no absolute truth and oh that's my truth and your truth when it comes to nazi germany most people are still able to say okay i'll suspend that truth is only relative stuff that's objective evil it's not just my opinion that's actually evil and it won't matter what time or place And fighting that kind of evil with that kind of cost if it doesn't break you it makes you. And Peter is saying that God will make you. He will make you stronger. You might be worried that oh I'm going to lose my conviction to stay in my marriage. I'm losing my conviction to stay with the dream God gave me. The call that He gave me. I'm losing the conviction to cross the finish line faithfully. But God says, I, I will make you strong. I will strengthen your heart. I will make your faith more muscular. I will make you able to push through to the finish line that others are not willing or able to cross. I will make you strong. The last promise says, and I will settle you. femmeliaa-oh," Which means to provide a base for some material object or structure. To lay a foundation. And it's this idea of security. To build a place that's your own. You probably know what that's like. People that are renting are often thinking of owning their own place. Or maybe you bought a place, but you didn't build the place. And then there's, I want to build my own place. You see this with Israel wandering in the wilderness, popping up a tent wherever they went. And they long, I want a real place with real walls. It doesn't just move around. You can't pop it down, you know, in a few days or something. We long for permanency, we long for stability. And God says, I will make you established. I will settle you permanently. I will make a permanent place for you. Remember what Jesus told His disciples when they were worried that He was leaving them? If I go away, I go to prepare a place for you. In My Father's house are many rooms. Now I know modern Americans don't like that. Many rooms. I like many mansions because we want to be separate from other people. But it's actually rooms. Because we're in one house, not many. And a child, if we're children, we want to be with our Heavenly Father. We want to be where He is. I'm going to prepare a place for you. This also sums up what Peter said earlier in chapter 2, verse 5, where he spoke of all those who are in Jesus. He said this, You also, as living stones, you are the house of God. You as living stones are being built up a spiritual house or temple, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He is the one that brings permanency into our lives. Everything else is in a state of flux, isn't it? What are you going to go out and get this week that can't change? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? In 10 years, what are you going to have that didn't change? Or you didn't lose? There's nothing in this world, and I'm not saying be completely cynical about that, but be realistic about it. Here we are, people that long for permanency in a world where everything changes. And when we don't recognize that our permanency permanency is in God, we try to make things here permanent. This is where tradition comes in. Tradition can be very valuable, it can preserve things that are good and true, beautiful, just, holy. Traditions can also preserve things that are bad, that are wrong, that are evil. And traditions can also preserve things that are not necessarily bad or good. But we seek to control them because we desire a sense of permanency. I've seen loved ones go through dementia and longing for things that they can remember and know right where it is because everything else, they're they're losing it. They can't remember this from that to find things that are familiar. As churches get older, you'll find that they split and fight and not even over doctrine necessarily, but over where the pulpit got moved. Which way the flag was turned? No joke. There's an eagle at the top. Was it facing this way or that way? Was there a Christmas tree in the lobby during Christmas or no Christmas tree? And people would actually leave churches over that. You wonder why? What's wrong with them? I would say it's this they rightly long for permanency, they wrongly put their trust in things that change. And we kick and scream and cry when things that are meant to change, change. But we also know we can't deny that desire in us for something permanent that we'll never lose. And that is the hope of the gospel. That we are promised a place in God's plan, in God's home, in God's heart, in God's future that we can never lose. And the Christian life is a journey of taking everything that you can lose and investing it in that which you cannot. The martyred modern missionary Jim Elliott famously said, He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Very true. Very biblical. We need to start investing our lives in what lasts forever. And that gets us to our final closing line, verse 11. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. At the end of the day, the great truth we have to remember is that life, including our suffering, is not about us. If my suffering is about me, it actually gets worse. But if I recognize my life and everything in it, both the good I have and the pain that I carry, is not mine. It belongs to my Savior, Jesus Christ. It is all His. We sing the song, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that it's all about Him? Do you believe what you're going through is all about Him? Do you apply that to your daily life? Or do we, and again, not putting anyone down because I've done this so many times, woe is me. It's my pain. No one knows what I'm going through. This is hard. I can't handle it. Another day of this and I can't take it. I sort of turn in on myself and it becomes all about me. And I and I don't see it because of the pain, but I'm being prideful. Because the whole story is about me. But if I recognize it's not about me, it's to him be the glory and the dominion. It is all about him. If this is my role, I've been assigned in the great drama of redemption, I am simply lucky to be on the king's stage. Who am I to see? Say I should be the main actor. I should get all the lines. And I shouldn't lose the relationship. And I shouldn't take a loss of that. Who am I to say that? Jesus is the star of the show. The drama of life belongs to Him. Let's give our lives and our roles to Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for speaking promise into our lives. I know these words were meant for me. And I need to follow through on them. I need to believe them. And I needed to hear them. And I believe this morning there are those of us, perhaps all of us, that needed to hear this message as well. And so I pray right now, Lord, as we close in a time of response, as we said, You are a God who promises. So what do we think about thats that? Worthy of our praise or is it not? I pray at least it would be worthy of our consideration. Lord, I pray you touch our minds and hearts. I pray you do a mighty work right now in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.